this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com It's 1966 in Berlin and the city has been divided for five years by an almost impenetrable wall erected by the communist German Democratic Republic. West German student Volker Heinz joins a group looking for ways to help would-be fugitives escape from east to west. Their search ends at Checkpoint Charlie, the most heavily secured border crossing of the Berlin Wall. By hiding the fugitives in the boot of a diplomat's car, Volker Heinz helps East German citizens flee to the West. However, the Stasi picks up his trail. Heinz is arrested and interrogated. We hear in detail of his time in prison, including the interrogations and fellow cellmates. Following secret negotiations and a show trial where he's sentenced to 12 years imprisonment, Heinz is eventually swapped for two Soviet spies and in 2012 he was awarded the Federal Order of Merit in recognition of his courage. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. This is Mary O'Grady. Anyone who's interested in Cold War history should definitely subscribe and support Cold War Conversations. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Volker Heinz to our Cold War conversation. Well, the situation is simply prescribed as, as an academic background. My father was an engineer and uh, he worked uh, for a rather large firm specializing in the uh, production of artificial fiber. He was uh, not traveling, selling such products abroad, worldwide, actually. We were four children in Wuppertal, the place we went to school, where we lived at the time. And we grew up in in basically in a happy family. You went on to further education, to university. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I first went at my, following my father's advice, who was an engineer, as I mentioned, who wanted me to become an engineer as well. So so we both went to a uh, school where we learned French and Greek and Latin. And he told me, well, Falker, these days English is much more important than any of these three languages. So I, what I had to do in order to enter the uh, technical university, you had to have done some practical training in some factory and uh, due to his uh, excellent international contacts, he sent me to, believe it or not, to Scotland with uh, the firm of Babcock and Wilcox, a large engineering English engineering firm, which was 
involved a lot in shipbuilding at that sort of style. And that's where I started to learn English, actually. Uh, but uh, I then returned after six months to Germany. I spent, I think, three months in Glasgow, uh, one month in uh, Birmingham, and two months in London, the headquarters of the firm. And then I returned to Germany, went to the Technical University, only to find out after two terms that it wasn't quite my cup of tea. And to his great disappointment, <laughs> I must say, I changed some hundred kilometers further north to Heidelberg, a world-famous student city with a lot of attractions and distractions. And uh, I joined a German-style fraternity, uh, which meant uh, uh, rather sort of blunt, a lot of drinking, a lot of fencing, and uh, having a good time for three terms. But then after the third semester, you were expected to sit down and finally prepare for your exams, which I did. Or at least, let's put it that way, I started to do it. Uh, uh, after the three terms in Heidelberg, I moved to Berlin. I was attracted by this unique situation of Berlin and and moved there only to uh, study there economics and law in one of his sister fraternity's house or building. I met people who were involved in helping people to escape from the East Berlin to West Berlin and I must admit, I was just fascinated. I mean, obviously, I was 22 or something like that, easily to be fascinated and uh, and to be enthusiastic. I then um, listened to all what they had to say very reluctantly at first, but after some while, I became a clearer picture of what they are actually doing. And I was so impressed that I said, look, if ever you need help, just come back to me. Uh, perhaps deep down hoping they wouldn't come back, but they did. <laughs> they did come back. When they did, I said to myself, oh God, what have I done? But I, I, I saw no morally acceptable way now to run away. So I said, yes, okay, here I am. You know, you, you had, I think it was Manfred, uh, a meeting with Manfred, which was sort of like, the the catalyst you saw a magazine in his uh, apartment yeah let me just make one brief point most of the names in the book are not the real names so i know whom you mean by manfred but it's irrelevant for the story ultimately he was a great friend of mine or he became a great friend of mine in berlin one morning we were sitting together in his small flat and uh, he was preparing a cup of coffee for himself and myself, and on the table was uh, the latest edition of the Stern, which is a German magazine. I saw the report of uh, youngsters pulling someone with a with a long collapsible ladder over the wall somewhere in the outskirts of Berlin, not in the center, of course. And I just realized the man pictured here 
in this magazine is exactly the man in whose flat I'm sitting. I said, look, that's you. And uh, he, he denied it. But it was so clear to me that I insisted after I had broken down his resistance, he accepted, yes. So you can imagine I wanted to know everything now and started to ask many questions, how they do it and why they do it and who helps them, who financed what they're doing because it required to a certain degree financing. When I then told him at the end of the conversation that I'm prepared to help, I was waiting and nothing happened for about six months until they came <laughs> and asked whether I would be able and willing now to help. You had a meeting with the leader of the uh, the group? Yes. Leader of the group, Wolfgang Fuchs is his name, or in English that would be Fox. And uh, Wolfgang was uh, the organizer. He had to building the uh, famous Tunnel 57, the, the tunnel through which 55 people escaped in 1964, if I'm correct, if I remember correctly. And uh, he had a great reputation as a successful escape helper. And uh, we got along very quickly. I liked what he was doing. Uh, he obviously was impressed by my preparedness to assist. And he said, uh, he will come back. Again, it took a number of weeks until then finally invited me to bring some message to somebody in East Berlin. And what one needs to know is, of course, that if you were a West Berlin citizen, you couldn't come just simply and go into East Berlin. That was the privilege of either diplomats or allied soldiers or people from West Germany who had a separate identity card. But with the separate West German identity card, I could go as often as I liked uh, into the east of Berlin with one restriction. You had to be out by midnight. So that was a test, presumably, to see whether you could carry it off. Can you just take me through that that first test that you you did? Um, it was nothing of of, uh, of any spectacular nature. All I had to do is to bring a certain message. That message consisted of a number of words, which I have forgotten, of course. And uh, they didn't make terribly much sense to me, but obviously that made, they made more sense to the recipient. And uh, I fulfilled my promise. I delivered the message and returned back to West Berlin, hoping that no one would have noticed anything. But it would have been very difficult to know exactly, to observe me without I noticing them. And I wasn't screaming in their streets. <laughs> it was a small, uh, it was a quiet voiced message which I passed on. And you were given instructions as to how to identify the person who you were supposed to pass this message on to. Because I think yes. it, in the book it mentions it's it's an S-Bahn station. And I think he's carrying a book or something. 
I think exactly. But that, that was the usual the usual stuff to recognize each other. Uh, you know, the, the, for instance, the refugees were given uh, or were asked to carry a certain book or a certain magazine or something else, whatever it is. I again something that I had to answer in order to identify myself that we knew mutually. That is perhaps not perfect, but it is it worked quite well. What was the Berlin government and the Allied authorities' view of escape helpers? Well, frankly speaking, they were not altogether happy. They they couldn't outright condemn it, but of course, the West Berlin Senate, the government of West Berlin, didn't want to create unnecessary tensions. And one mustn't forget that behind the escape helping activities, there were lots of hundreds, thousands of West Berlin citizens who wanted to visit their friends or relatives on the other side. And there was always the fear that if scalp helping became too well known that East Berlin might not allow these visits any longer. So the West Berlin government, although they looked at it to a certain degree with admiration, they feared we would go too far. How were these groups funded? Where were they financed from? Well, I had nothing to do with finance, but I know from one remark from Wolfgang Fuchs that they had close a close relationship with the then governing CDU, Christian Democratic Union. And I think that's quite plausible that the CDU rather than the SPD would provide financial means. So after that, that test mission that you uh, had to do, how quickly did you start actually assisting with uh, escapes? Not long after this test mission, I moved back from Berlin to West Germany because I was only inscribed at the Freie University for two terms. And then I went to Bonn, the then capital of West Germany. That meant, of course, a certain complication that I was not in Berlin any longer. But on the other hand, it was a protection for me. I was not staying in Berlin. I just flew in and flew back. This is one of the expenses I was, of course, given back when I used to fly back to and fro Berlin. And how did it function? We come to that a bit later. But first of all, the important point is I got either a phone call or a telegram from Wolfgang asking me to come. So there were only three lines at the time flying to West Berlin. I think it was the Pan Am for for the States and British European Airways for Great Britain and Wales and the French Air Force, yes, of course. So the nearest airport to Bonn is Cologne, so I took my little car, my little Volkswagen, drove from Bonn to Cologne Airport, jumped into the plane, was received by Wolfgang in West Berlin uh, at the then 
functioning airport of Tempelhof, Berlin Tempelhof. And what sort of missions were you doing then? What what were they moving you up into uh, doing at that point? Wolfgang and I, before I became really active, apart from that little silly mission at the beginning, uh, we were thinking what we could do. So we were actually walking along the wall, sometimes climbing these uh, wooden ladders that allowed you to look over the wall, considering whether tunnel is the right thing to, to try again after the 1964 tunnel was discovered. Then one day we went jointly into a, a shop, a, a carpet shop, on, along Kurfürstendamm, the big boulevard in West Berlin. The owner of the carpet shop was clearly a Syrian with good contacts to the Syrian government or some of their uh, people. And believe it or not, in uh, when we went to the shop, Wolfgang had arranged for that. We ran into the uh, a high diplomatic officer of the Syrian or Arab Republic, a gentleman called Kamal Hamdi. And he was prepared to smuggle out in his diplomatic car in the boot or in the trunk and uh, why did he do that? I don't know. Obviously, he was badly paid and had no car, so we organized quite a comfortable Mercedes car, or Daimler-Benz car, with a large enough trunk. And uh, he was prepared, against payment, of course, to smuggle out these people. Now, my job was simple, but not quite uncomplicated to pick up the would-be refugees at the point that had been agreed before, obviously, with recognitions all well informed how we could recognize each other mutually. And then I took these people on foot. We walked to the nearest, let's say, underground station or uh, tram station or bus station you couldn't possibly put people in, in the trunk of a car in the middle of the city. There are too many windows around. So we it had to be in the outskirts of East Berlin. And to get to the outskirts, you had to take public transport. And so I had to uh, take these people, send them from a particular, let's say, bus station to the next bus station, and said, wait for me there. And so I then separately went another way to see, am I followed or not? Our methods of finding out whether we are followed or not were rather primitive, quite, nevertheless quite effective. And since I walked part of the way with the refugees and partly sat next to them in the tram or the bus or, or the underground, we gradually approached the location where the diplomat and I had agreed to meet. And usually it was when it was dark. And so he had his headlights on in his car. And I had a little torch to give signs that were agreed upon. And he with his car lights could use them in a way that 
they passed on a certain message that was agreed upon before. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And once we then de facto met and after having exchanged and everything the air is clear and my refugee is waiting next to me close to the road I then called them out and the car stopped and I made sure that they couldn't recognize the car the lack of light helped a lot um, and I they were terribly nervous most of them didn't remember anything and uh, yes, helps to uh, put them down in the trunk of the car, close the the lid, as it were. Then the diplomat moved towards the checkpoint Charlie. That's where diplomats had to go to enter or leave the GDR, and we are not controlled. There was no luggage control, and on that principle, the whole method was based that the diplomat wouldn't be. T- checked and that we didn't make a mistake, that the refugees would behave in the trunk and not start to knock at the the metal, make a noise. It functioned very well for a number of times, many times actually. Altogether with this method, I think we ferried some 50, 60 people. I don't have the exact number with me. Uh, But, of course, nothing is for eternity, and one day that stopped. It stopped in a dramatic way. Can you remember how you felt during that first escape that you were running there? Yes, of course. I mean, I was highly nervous, but at the same time desperately trying not to show it. And that's actually the, the basically the hardest burden is to to have this whole responsibility because obviously at any time I should have terminated the activity, sent them home, much to their disappointment probably, very much so to my own disappointment. But I never had the feeling of being closely watched or observed and therefore just had to deal with their immense nervousness. That can only function if you are calm. And there may be a lot of turmoil in your soul, but you can't show it, of course. And you you must have felt incredibly elated once you were back over the border after that first escape. Yes, but I never saw my refugees again for security reasons. 
uh, I didn't have their names. They didn't have my name. All they had a description, but they wouldn't re release it to any GDR authorities because they would do anything but go back. So maybe they rang their friends and relatives via telephone. I don't know how it happened, but as lonely I felt afterwards, I nevertheless fully understood that it's my own protection and their protection that we know of each other as little as possible. I think round about this time, you reach out to an older member of your university fraternity just in case you do get caught so that there's somebody who has leads into the West German government who could potentially help you if you were arrested. Yes, indeed. Uh, after, I guess, the first 12, 15 people were out, I uh, addressed this uh, older member of my own fraternity, just a few words to the fraternity. A fraternity is basically a lifelong association among academics who have studied the same city at this time, in, in this case, in, in Heidelberg. And uh, the attraction is, of course, that you bring together all generations from 20 to 90. And, of course, you have uh, access through your various co-members uh, to certain jobs, to certain people, that you normally, as a small student of 20, would not have. And uh, this particular person is well known. His name is Dr. Hans Martin Schleyer. He was murdered by some, at the time, West German military-like grouping that did not hesitate to catch people, keep them uh, imprisoned wherever they did that, and tried then to uh, uh, force the government to release some people that were caught and in, in sitting in in, uh, in prisons. Anyway, that was many, many, many years later. Actually, not that many, but so it's some 12 years later. And I approached him during one of our festivities in Heidelberg and asked him, I told him what I'm doing. I said, uh, no one knows, but neither my friends, nor my parents, nor, nor my girlfriends, no one knows what I, that I'm doing that. But I want you to know, so in case something goes wrong, uh, I would be grateful if you could uh, contact my family, which, by the way, he did when I was after my arrest. He was also interested in getting... Uh, a member of the fraternity out of East Germany as as well, as a result of your conversation. He did provide some funds to assist with that. That's true. Uh, I was astonished. I mean, I, my approach to him had nothing to do with other members of the fraternity, but he obviously knew of somebody, i.e. the sister of one of our uh, fraternity members, and this sister was married to a East Berlin doctor, actually a child doctor. They had three or three children, I believe, 
uh, always confuse the numbers of the children they have. Anyway, and uh, that was a big exception that I actually visited that family. Normally, Wolfgang would have used a, an envoy, a special person, to bring messages from A to B. And my function was completely separate and different. And the only reason why I did it in this case was because I knew the family. What is so special about this escape? We got out in two in two uh, portions, as it were. The uh, parents with a very young baby and three older children in a separate tour the next day, which was a great success, of course. Um, the special point was that uh, in order to make sure that the child doesn't start, start screaming during the voyage, the father, who was a child doctor, <laughs> obviously it was up to him to keep control of that child, which he managed, and the GDR in my proceedings, my, my penal proceedings, uh, mentioned that the father had endangered the life of his own child. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but obviously this was mentioned in order to demonstrate how ruthless we went to work and how little respect we had for the life of youngsters. Now, I think round about this time, you notice what you think may be some surveillance on you in East Berlin. Yes. Obviously, you're always in, in, in fear that you may be detected. And uh, how do you avoid being observed? Well, you cannot really guarantee anything. You must develop a, sex, a sixth sense. You must uh, be extremely observant. And you must, at the same time, not show any nervous attitude. It's a difficult job. And uh, once in that period of escapes, I had the feeling that I was observed. So I started to walk faster, but the distance never became less between me and the two gentlemen behind me. And so I continued to the next underground station and then ran like hell down the staircase and had the good luck that the train was just about to leave and I jumped into the open door and the two didn't make it. From there, of course, I went to the border, to check, not check, but try another border, of course, between East and West Berlin and it was extremely fearful that they may, I may be arrested now, but I wasn't. So we continued. Your luck runs out on the 9th of September 1966 where you're, you're handling an escape with uh, a couple who uh, you are supposed to meet on Dimitrovstrasse in Berlin. Can you take me through the events of that day? Yes. Everything developed 
as planned. I uh, met them, we recognized each other. I took them from that meeting point towards the outskirts of East Berlin, as I have done in many other cases before. The, the, the diplomat in his car arrived. I opened the trunk. The two couple went into the trunk. I, I closed it. In that particular case, I even think I sat next to the diplomat for a short while, simply because it was late. I had to be out by midnight. It was dark. September is already early darkish. And uh, I just asked him to drop you, me at the next public transport station, which he did. In that particular case, I was arrested when trying to leave the uh, East Berlin into West Berlin. I was arrested. And so were the diplomat and the couple, as I was later told. Obviously, I wasn't informed about that. What I know from the files, from the Stasi files, which I inspected many, many, many years later after unification in 1989, that's, all, that's after all 23 years later, is that the Stasi police informed the entire government about the capture of myself and the arrest of the diplomat. The diplomat was then sent on a GDR plane back to Syria, to Damascus. The funny thing is that he, uh, our friend Kamal Hamdi managed to escape. How did he do that? There was a stopover in Cyprus uh, for this plane. It was obviously an ordinary passenger plane. And he managed to escape in Cyprus. Apparently, he had a second passport somewhere hidden in his jacket. And then he went and asked for asylum in West Germany, which he was given. But I never saw him again. I was only heard that he had started a carpet business, like a man from the Kurfürstendamm in West Berlin, <laughs> his compatriot. So... Um, so you're arrested at the checkpoint as you're trying to leave East Berlin. What's your immediate thoughts at, at that moment? That is something you will never forget, I guess, in your life. It, is, uh, it was clear to me that something had gone wrong. It was clear to me that uh, they wouldn't arrest me without good cause. And I was then... Of course, the usual stuff, the very hard interrogation in the first five, six, seven nights, hardly any sleep. Sleep deprivation is is not a nice thing to experience. But I had no reason to lie. It was obviously I had a list of all my... Uh, whenever I came into the into East Berlin whenever I left it. They had a full list in front of them. And it, there was no sense in denying that. Uh, obviously, I didn't give their names because I didn't have them myself. 
I mean, the names of the refugees. But basically, it was a uh, rather sober business. They tried to reconstruct every move of Bayern. I had no reason to deny them that. I saw no advantage or disadvantage in doing that. And uh, so then after six months, the sort of start is, since we had taken out so many people, I had a lot to tell. You know, that each interrogation turned around one couple or one person. If you take out 23, 40, how, how many people or couples, you can imagine it takes time. It has double-checked by them and then they, I don't know how they do it in, in, in detail. But uh, then I had contact uh, with uh, a East Berlin lawyer, Dr. Wolfgang Vogel, quite an illustrious figure, who uh, worked narrowly together with the East German government. Basically, their business was to, was to, to exchange prisoners, either as a prisoner exchange man against man or woman against woman, or by the West German government paying for the release of his citizens. And in my particular case, it was a rather complicated case because in order to force the East Germans to release me early, the West Germans were asked for a similar gesture. And the dramatic story was that the uh, the head of the the German MI6 was a Mr. Felfer who was actually a KGB spy, but he was the leader of the KGB department of the German MI6. It's a ridiculous situation, an incredible embarrassment for the government. And of course, the GDR was not particularly interested in Mr. Felfer because he was out of all the Soviet spy and not the GDR spy. <laughs> But the GDR, of course, was under pressure from their socialist friends in Moscow. And so the deal ultimately was that, all right, it would be unfair. Volker Heinz is a small idealistic student, and this Mr. Felfer is a simple and experienced criminal. And uh, I don't know how, well, I don't want to know how many people he delivered. Uh, to the Soviets and the GDR authorities in his uh, capacity as the head of the KGB department in Munich. But uh, anyway, the West German government didn't want to release Mr. Felfer because he had done so much damage. And the ultimate outcome of the negotiations was that I was exchanged against two other KGB spies that worked for Mr. Felfer. Plus, the government, the West German government, paid a sizable amount of money, the exact sum I don't know, not till this day. They paid to the East German government. So it was a combination of an exchange of prisoners and the payment of a sizable amount of money. And the point was, Felfer was not released immediately. He had to wait another three years. 
The West German government was not prepared to release him unless he had at least sat in prison for two or three or five years. I don't know exactly. I just want to go back to your time when you were in prison, because as you say, you have that initial interrogation, and then I believe that you're taken to Hohenschönhausen, which is the main Stasi remand prison in Berlin. And uh, you're put in a cell with uh, somebody called Richard. Yeah. I mean, I would say about half the time I was on my own, but not at the beginning. And, of course, I was immediately suspicious that there's someone uh, put into the cell in order to persuade me to release information that might be of interest for the Stasi. But in the end, I, d I don't think that suspicion was justified. We got along quite well. He was an East German citizen who had tried to flee and was captured. Don't forget, his prospects were extremely dim. Once you had done that and were captured, you lost your job, you lost uh, your, your, your accommodation. It's just a terrible situation to be in. Whilst in my occasion, I, I never felt, I never had a bad conscience. For me, that wasn't a crime. For me, that was humanitarian help. And that helps a lot if, 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 you, have, uh, if you know that uh, you have done the right thing. Uh, whilst these people had no perspective. I felt terribly sorry for him. There was, uh, there was another guy that... I never forget, he was, uh, he had fled the GDR in the early days before the war was built. And he was employed by Pan American Airlines to clean their machines, their engines, the interior, I don't know. Uh, but uh, he had no real profession and uh, and such a job wasn't badly paid, so then he used the money to go to East Berlin. He too had to leave by midnight. And, uh, yeah, one of his pleasures was to invite uh, girls or whores from the street, entertain them, and then return. He uh, was a rather strange personality. Uh, he used to work for the army in, in Congo. In, you remember perhaps that there was a, a battle in Congo between the north and the south. The southern part was uh, Katanga, I think. Yeah, the United Nations were involved in it as well. Exactly, and, and the, the, the chap who, who ran this Katanga business was Moise Chombe, I think was his name, Moise Chombe. Anyway, he was uh, a, a soldier in his private army and he told me terrible stories like forcing the uh, poor people over whom they had control to help them to have a shower by forcing them to fill certain containers so that they could have a nice shower and if they didn't do it or refused to, that they shot them. And then he quite proudly told us that. I mean, that sort of personality is, is, is awful to be right next to you in the same room in which you sleep, 
with completely different moral standards. I was happy when he left, and the reason why he left was because I loudly complained uh, because one night he had the brilliant idea to pee on my uh, feet that dangled out of a bed far too short. But anyway, I must say that was when the Stasi accepted my complaint and helped that tiny bit. Anyway, it wasn't a happy time. It wasn't a happy time, prison. I can't tell you, but uh, I had to fight a long battle to get bits and pieces of paper and maybe a, a, a pen. I asked for dictionary. I wanted to learn Russian at least, since I'm under Russian influence now. <laughs> it took a long while until I got a, a German-Russian dictionary and could help myself. The groundwork for my Russian was laid by my, by this first gentleman I mentioned earlier, because he went to school, of course, in East Berlin, and uh, Russian was an, an obligatory subject. I mean, how do you keep your mental health in that situation? Because at one point you've got no paper, you know, you can't, you're not, you know, you're not going to hear music or anything like that. So you're there with just your own thoughts. That must be really tough. Well, it is tough, but if you have nothing else, that's what you have to do. You have to uh, imagine matters. For instance, I used to. Uh, remember going with my mother to to watch an opera or for a concert. I tried to remember all the poems that I had learned, whether in German, French, Greek, or Latin. Um, and that helped to keep you busy because, of course, you forget bits and pieces and then you try to reconstruct them. And after a certain time, I think after three or four months, uh, I had the benefit of being given two to three books per week from a, a gentleman who ran around with his books along the long corridors, opened the flaps and passed in his choice of books, of course. You couldn't order any books and some of them were absolutely intolerable. Uh, others were very good. Anything from the uh, political left spectrum, and there are clever people on that side, uh, was uh, available, including the Swiss poet of Max Frisch, which astonished me immensely, but uh, he's a great poet and I liked it. But normally it was dull about the collectivization of the farming industry and the GDR I, I found utterly boring, apart from the fact that, of course, I had great pity with the people who were negatively affected. And don't forget, I also had a particular relationship with farming because my grandfather was a farmer. Your main interrogator during this period is uh, Lieutenant Bergman. And you quite cleverly get his name. You find out what his name is because he's he's not going to give it to you uh, willingly. Uh, certainly not. 
No, so no, no. It was. I mean, it was sheer coincidence, and that he was negligent in love or didn't believe how audacious I was. I don't know. Anyway, he was uh, off and on interrupting the interrogation, and went next door, or what sounded like next door, and kept the door sort of a bit ajar so they can hear whether I was moving in his room. And there was a, a, a small section with a, a tiny library. Or to be frank, it was about five or six books. And so I grabbed the first one when he was out, opened it, and saw Bergman written. That could have been his name, but of course I couldn't be sure. But what I did, and uh, I admire my own courage at the time, I must say, I didn't react immediately, but this knowledge of knowing a name which could be his, I used the next interrogation session to address him, not as Herr Leutnant, Mr. Lieutenant, no, Herr Bergman. And his reaction was crystal clear. He was shocked, but didn't say a word, and we never discussed it. But for me, it was crystal clear. That is his name. And indeed, it was confirmed after unification when I had access to files of the Stasi. That was his name. A small victory there. And I think you tried to make contact with him after the end of East Germany. Yes, I did. I would have loved to uh, talk to him uh, to see what his position in life is now probably a world collapse because he was young. He was, I was 23 when I was arrested. Um, and he, I think at the time, was still in his late 20s, maybe possibly 30 or something. He had no academic background. He probably was recruited and chosen for that job by whoever. I wrote letters later, registered letters, he never answered. But I got hold of his uh, personal file of the Stasi, uh, so I could see how how he was gradually promoted. He ended up in the position as a major. So, from his point of view, very successful and very much part of the Stasi apparatus. And that probably made it particularly hard for him to talk to one of his former uh, prisoners. Nevertheless, uh, I have one of my most recent friendships uh, is, is, is a former Stasi officer. He was very young. He's younger than I am. And uh, as a matter of fact, he was meant to uh, enter the diplomatic service of the GDR in the United States, and he learned English, he learned to play tennis, he learned to play all sorts of things in order to move around as an experienced diplomat. And shortly before he entered the plane, the wall came down. And with the wall coming down, that was the end of his diplomatic career, which had actually never started. And so he uh, entered some business, uh, in the insurance industry and uh, through the insurance 
industry, we came to know each other and it took us a long while to disclose our, in a sense, a joint history. Not really in his case because he was too young. But uh, it helped me to understand a tiny bit better why they did it, what they did. Tja, when your f father is a high Stasi officer, you can't be surprised if the son becomes a Stasi officer. He's a very bright, intelligent man, but uh, I think he is one of those who learned to live in new, with new realities. Some don't. I always have a, a theory that ex-Stasi employees sort of do quite well in roles that require strong, soft skills because of their knowledge that they've gained in terms of getting information out of people. With um, Lieutenant Bergman, I mean, what was the, the technique? Was it just repetition of the same questions just to see whether you changed your answers? There was there was no specific method. I mean, I did read what he wrote about my confessions because they wanted every single page of that. They wanted signed to be sure that this is right. It's I don't I don't think that they really they not they did not apply any force. And that is largely due to the fact, and now I come back to Dr. Schleier again. It was him, after finding out that I am incarcerated, that he drove to uh, Bonn, the capital, strict, straight into the uh, chancellery and wanted to talk to not German chancellor himself, but to the man who ran uh, the staff there, the head of the year. Chancellor, the administrative head of the chancellery. And he happened to be in the same fraternity as I and Dr. Schleier. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. Schleier asked him, well, what can we do for Volker? And uh, the head of the chancellery said, well, all we can do is to put him on the West German exchange wish list, place number one. Now, that is, was a statement, a monstrous statement. But in that very second, I became a, a piece of goods, uh, subject to uh, exchange, subject to payment, subject to whatever. And that is the good reason why I was never touched in any way or tortured or anything. All right, sleep deprivation, yes. In the widest sense, you could call it torture. I never felt it as being a truly torture. I was, for me, it was clear that's their job. They had to interrogate me. They, they, they wanted results. They didn't want pain. They were not interested in pain. They were interested in results. And since I was giving them the results, I had nothing to, 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 to uh, report. I didn't know the refugees. I knew very little about Wolfgang. So, yeah, th this these negotiations are going on behind the scenes and you meet Wolfgang Vogel, who is the famous East German lawyer who oversaw the exchange of Rudolf Abel and Gary Powers on the Glienicke Bridge. Can you tell me about that meeting with Vogel? What was that like and what was the man like? I 
obviously met him after my release and especially after unification. I'm still in contact with his with his uh, widow, rarely so, but still. And we had a number of meetings. He is a uh, he's a bright creature. He is extremely discreet. That's part of his business. And uh, he was careful in his wording, so that he didn't promise too much, but did say what was necessarily. Had what necessarily had to be said. I, like many others, asked myself, how can he survive in such a system where he is producing income for his state, at the same time showing, unless it's completely faked, which it wasn't in my opinion, interest in the humanitarian side of the business, he was fairly unique. I mean, he was, he had his other weaknesses, like he was, he liked big cars. He had a, a golden color Mercedes Benz as a GDR citizen. I mean, it, okay, one understands it. It's like people want to drive a Porsche or a Jaguar. But he, both sides, that, that is his secret, both sides trusted him. Honecker, and early on, it was Ulbricht, although Ulbricht was almost out at the time. Um, and the West Germans trusted him. And it worked. But only it only worked because he never said too much or too little. And that is a... It requires a certain sensitivity and an insight into characters that not everybody possesses. And I guess when, when you met him that first time, that was your first indication that things were moving behind the scenes and there was a possibility of, of release at that point. Yes. Uh, the first time I met him, um, strangely enough, he didn't, Vogel, I mean, he didn't come to Hohenschönhausen but I was ferried back into the city, probably Magdalenstraße, the Lichtenberg headquarters of the Stasi. And there I was keen on talking to him. But interestingly, when he entered the room in, in, in which our conversation took place, he took his uh, right finger and put it in front of his mouth and at the same time then afterwards pointed up towards the ceiling. I mean, it was obvious what he wanted to say. Shut up, don't talk, we are certainly observed here. But he didn't say it. It was just a tiny little gesture which was clear, at least mm. to me. And um, what he said, everybody could hear. He said there will be uh, legal proceedings probably in April or May, possibly in June, I don't know. And uh, I apologize, I can't be present. During your uh, criminal proceedings, I will uh, send a colleague of mine who is familiar with the case, but I have other things, more pressing things to do. 
which is not particularly pleasant to hear that your case is not important enough, but <laughs> good enough. I understood it. Don't forget I was studying law and it wasn't completely foreign a world for me. But that was his cleverness, you know, to say nothing and uh, achieve what he needed. So how does the, the trial go? Well, the trial, in a sense, it was boring. It was a repetition of everything I had myself largely told to the interrogators, and that was presented just slightly differently worded and, and structured, structured, but it, it was nothing new. But of course, it was uh, full of uh, communist ornament, ornamental language, like, uh, I'm a criminal, of course. Uh, I'm reckless, of course. Uh, I endanger the peace of the world. And, you know, everything that is well-known propaganda. And don't forget, there was a, a real propaganda war between East and West. And they both had their radio stations, their TV stations, blah, blah, blah. And they are uh, big protectors, Soviet Union in the East and the America in the West. No, that wasn't a surprise at all. It was just worn-out language. The only thing that surprised me was uh, the sentence. I had expected something like seven, eight years because I knew of other people who had received at least two or three years. Five was already a lot and seven was the maximum to my unproven knowledge. Whatever I had heard, I had no statistics, of course. But I have never heard of 12 years. And the only explanation, I didn't find an explanation at first, but later understood, very simple. In order to increase the price, the West German government had to pay in terms of exchange of prisoners, in terms of paying money, in order to increase that price, they had to increase my sentence. Only many, many years later did I read that the average top or the, or the, the highest sentence for escape helper other than life, which for escape helpers was never given, was seven years. I didn't, I didn't know that at the time, I must admit. I was just hoping it wouldn't be more than seven because I was calculating I'm 23 plus seven is 30. Do you know any students who are 30? Yes, I do. Um, so it's not the end of the world. You have to help yourself. You have to believe in your future. If you don't, that is what I have observed in my GDR co-prisoner who had basically given up hope. I tried to bring across uh, a more pro-life attitude. So we persuaded him to teach me Russian. I persuaded him to play chess with me, chess that we built ourselves in a very primitive way. Um, I don't know what 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 his later lot was. I have no idea at all. I don't even know his name. And if I even was given a name, I'm sure it was the wrong one. After the trial, the Stasi 
try and recruit you before your release. Yes. That is, strange enough, that I knew. I've heard that because one of my friends from the same Fuchs group, he was uh, imprisoned and released very quickly. So I, I had the advantage from our exchanges that I almost recognized <laughs> the prison at where I had never been before. But of course, he described very clearly these long gangways and and the Freistunde, which means you are, that is a kind of a cell without a roof so that you get fresh air but can't see anyone. So his description were very clear and convincing. And then, yes, indeed, I recognized his situation, which I encountered a year or two later. What was the pitch? How, how were they trying to recruit you? Well, the point was that obviously, I mean, I had a visit from two guys who came into my cell at a time when I was expecting something to happen because the trial was over. I hoped that something would happen because I had an indication from Wolfgang Vogel. I can't remember the wording, but I do know that he tried to tell me, don't despair, things are on their way, along that those lines. And so I was expecting that something would happen. And when they came in, asking me whether I could imagine they could help me, although they couldn't, of course, the decisions were made elsewhere, but they could help me to get released earlier, And but they would like me to help them to ultimately make sure that this escape business of Wolfgang Fuchs would end. And I told them very simply that uh, this comes as a great surprise to me. And frankly speaking, my mind is elsewhere. My mind is getting freedom. And I, I, I see myself not in a position to promise anything. I was careful. I didn't want to say no. I didn't say never. I just didn't want to engage myself and ask for um, for their understanding that in my position uh, I, I'm not, uh, it's not my free will I'm, I'm sitting in a prison anyway and they gave me an address to which I could always turn in case I decided to do help to, to help them as they wished me to now I forgot this address some anonymous postal code uh, in East Berlin and of course, I never even dreamt of, of working for them. And anyway, shortly after they left, only a day or two later, indeed, I was then called to take my things. So I was given my civil clothes, um, even my little torch, and um, then outside a a large BMW was waiting with an East Berlin number plate, which is quite unusual. And as far as I remember, that was the uh, car of the uh, uh, general prosecutor of the GDR. In a four or five hour trip, I was driven to the West German border. And shortly before reaching that border, we stopped I moved from this car into the car of Wolfgang Vogel, this golden Mercedes, went to the border, 
met there my West German lawyer, Jürgen Stanger. Jürgen Stanger was the West German pendant negotiating Vogel on the East, Stanger on the West. And then I was released. My parents were waiting. My father, uh, who wasn't quite happy with what his son had done to him and his and his wife and the whole family. Yes, I understand that. And I stand it today, of course, much better than I understood it at the time, because then I was still a wild young man. Uh, today, approaching 80, uh, you think differently. You have family, you have children, you have grandchildren, and I do understand his disappointment. Nevertheless, I had no reason to regret it or to apologize, and I never did. I felt sorry that I hurt them, but I didn't see to apologize for what I did in full conviction. And I think that they understood. What was that moment like, stepping across the line back into West Germany after all of that? Well, it's fun. It's, it's marvelous. I mean, it's, 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 I... Don't forget, my, my, my attention was caught by seeing my cha my parents. I mean, obviously, there, I didn't have any eyes for the for the beauty of the nature, or for the condition of the road. I saw, Vogel was there, Stanger was there, the chauffeur was there taking photographs. Uh, my return. My mother was. Uh, Emotional as ever. Their father were rather reserved, but nevertheless, yes, it was a great moment. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, but at the same time, it was crystal clear to me that I had to uh, go back to university and finally do the exams. You mustn't forget, I mean, I went, as I mentioned earlier, uh, six months to England. Okay, the positive side was I learned English. And then one year in Karlsruhe, mechanical engineering studies, nothing done. Then one and a half years Heidelberg, nothing done. Then a year in the prison. I, 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 I spoiled three or four years of my life. So it was a compelling reason to sit down and do nothing but to study, which I did. And I was released in July 67. I joined university again in October, same year. And f 14 months later, I passed my exams. I did really nothing else but to study. I, 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 st I studied with the same determination with which I brought out people. <laughs> One could say almost... That's a great answer. Did you find out how the Stasi got on to you and the uh, Syrian diplomat? They installed a measuring device along Checkpoint Charlie where they could say you know, the car registered in East Berlin, leaving to West Berlin and coming back. And then they measure the distance between the road and the, uh, the car itself. That may have helped them, but that wasn't that wasn't uh, 
the decisive point. The decisive point, in my opinion, was twofold. Number one, one of the refugees which I brought out returned. He was in love. He couldn't stand it without his girlfriend, so he returned. And everybody who knows the GDR knew that if you return as a refugee, you are interrogated very harshly. And so they had a, a perfect description of my of myself. I mean, I'm one meter eighty nine. I'm not a small man. So there were certain things about me that he must have reported, describing what I'm wearing, have I glasses or not, what shoe, uh, what what shoes am I wearing. That was very important. Uh, this return. The second point was uh, they had, of course, then started to, to look how many people actually come during the six months of our activities actually on a regular basis because every person is registered. That wasn't done by computers yet. It was done by hand. And it takes time to dig it all out and compose it. But they did. And indeed, I've I've seen the list. Actually, I think it's almost uh, published in my book. That list of my entries uh, into the GDR and back to West Berlin. So they had a number of leads to help them. And when they arrested me, they knew what they were doing, and they were absolutely right. Basically, they were using. Uh, this measuring device to see whether the car was loaded with some extra weight that didn't originally come in to East Berlin and then they were using this statistical analysis to find out who was coming in and out regularly and I think they matched up the times that you were coming in with the times of the Syrian diplomat as well. You're absolutely right. I should have mentioned it earlier that they actually started to suspect that who could possibly, if someone from the diplomatic corps took people out, there were maybe 100 nations that had diplomatic relationships with the GDR, of which half of them didn't possess a car, very poor nations, partly. I mean, they, they put together all their observation tools. Because I think they did... They did place a spy in the organization, didn't they? Yes, thank, thank you for reminding me. Yes, they did indeed. We didn't know at the time, obviously, but we know that from the Stasi files which we inspected after unification. But indeed, they managed uh, to persuade someone to uh, pose as someone interested in getting his or her relatives out. And uh, so gradually got bits and pieces of information which they collected as well. Yes, absolutely correct. I don't think it was absolutely crucial, but it was certainly helpful. Volker's book is called The Price of Freedom, Courage in the Shadow of the Berlin Wall. It's published by Amberley. 
There's links in the episode notes. And if you buy the book via those links, you will be supporting the podcast. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information